Open your Bibles, if you will, to Psalm 2. We're in a new series this morning. We'll spend a few months on the timeless questions from the Psalms. Psalm 2, and this is the Word of God. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, we're so glad this morning that we have before us your word, that it's true, that it's certain that it applies to us now, and that, Father, the, the issues that the people of God wrestled with 3,000 years ago, we wrestle with today. So, Father, give us understanding, we pray, by your Spirit, Father, to see what the answer is to the question that's posed to us here. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. They are the cries from the heart. They are the questions from the heart. Some of those are questions that keep us up at night. Others are part of our natural curiosity about God and his world. Questions like, how long, O Lord, will you forget us forever? Or how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Why do you forget our affliction and our oppression? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What's man that you're mindful of him? Who's the king of glory? Those are just a few of the questions in the Psalms, and we'll look at some of these in the coming weeks. As questions from the heart, as, as questions that we asked during the long, dark night of the soul, they, they're not always questions that have a, a neat, uh, succinct, and tidy answer. But they are questions the psalmist asked and questions that we still ask. They're the timeless questions. We ask the questions about the unfolding tragedy in Afghanistan, the desperation of Afghan women who would throw their children over a fence, the despair of 13 American soldiers dying this week, 11 men, two women. The first timeless question in the psalms comes in Psalm 2. It's this psalm that provides a framework for us of, of how to understand really the whole flow of human history. The historical setting is probably soon after David consolidates his rule over Israel. He moves the capital from Hebron to Jerusalem. The Ammonites and the Assyrians immediately begin to conspire against him, fight against him. And what happens to King David is a type, it's an illustration of something bigger. And that is opposition to King Jesus, a struggle that typifies humanity's rebellion against God. The question, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? 
Why do they begin their raging in the book of Genesis and their plotting and continue it till the book of Revelation and King Jesus comes again? How do we view the unfolding events, the tragic events in Afghanistan? We need to answer this timeless question. So let's go to the text. First, the nations rage because they have rebel hearts. Verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the rebels are against God. They're against his anointed. That is, they're against Messiah, Christ. The bond they feel, the cords they want to cut away, are really the law of God that's written on every human heart. Human beings rebel against the authority of God. The first rebels were the very first king and queen, King Adam and Queen Eve. In eating the fruit that God told them not to eat, they try to throw off God's cords of restraint, and they seek to be equal with God. Then their son, Cain, takes the lead in plotting against God in Genesis 4. Cain offers a subpar sacrifice from a rebellious heart, and God rejects it. Then God sentences Cain to wander through the earth to be restless after Cain murders his brother Abel. But what Cain does is defy God. Cain builds a city, and he names the city for his son. He deliberately opposes and violates God's sentence for him. And ever since, people have been building cities to make a name for themselves, to show themselves to be significant, important, and equal with God. Rebels against God. Rebels against making much of God's name. See, that's what happened to Tower of Babel. God's command to humanity in Genesis 1 was to multiply and to fill the earth. And we hear the defiance in the people at Babel who refuse to spread out. Instead are intent on staying together. Genesis 11.4 tells us they make much of themselves in rebellion against God. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So let's understand Our task as people is to make much of the name of God, not our name. Our task as people is to serve God and not ourselves. Our task is to fill the earth, not stay all in one spot. So you remember what happens. God comes down and confuses their speech. He forces the people to abandon their tower, and they spread around the world. They continue the quest to build cities, a city like Babel, which becomes Babylon. It's what the Taliban seek to do in Afghanistan, their own version of the Tower of Babel, their own Tower of Fame, their own stairway to heaven. It's from just such a city, Ur, that God calls Abraham from the worship of the moon god to the worship of the living God. Now, why might Abraham want to stay in the city of Ur? It's one of the world's great cities. I mean, he's 75 years old. It's all he's ever known. It's a large, modern city. He's successful. His extended family is there. 
So why go? Well, God's call, God's promises. And what he does is he acknowledges God's authority. So Abraham leaves and he goes and he lives in a tent. He goes, the book of Hebrews tells us, looking for a city. But he's anticipating a different kind of city. A city that's not made with human hands. Rather, the city of God. His dead, stone-hard rebel heart is transformed by the grace of God into a living heart of flesh that loves God and seeks to obey God. The second reason the nations rage is because they have their own agenda, and it is not God's agenda. There is a dual agenda in the scripture. You have the city of man and you have the city of God. In the Old Testament, Babylon emerges as the best example of the city of man. Ancient Babylon, complete with its hanging gardens, which were one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, uh, is a magnificent city. It's a powerful city, a beautiful city, a conquering city that has no fear and seemingly no equal. But then suddenly, in a single night, Babylon is a city that's taken down. As Jeremiah 51 predicted, Babylon shall become a heap of ruins, the haunt of jackals, a horror and a hissing without inhabitant. The seemingly invincible city that humiliated other cities is conquered in a single night. Babylon, for all its power and wealth and pompous pride, does not make it out of the Old Testament. God's judgment comes down on Babylon, and it comes down hard. So now here's the thing. All of history is caught up in the nations rebelling against God. The rage of the nations, though it's actually against God shows up in constant conflict and rage between the nations as they seek superiority, as they seek power, as they seek wealth, as they exploit and abuse one another. We know Abraham got caught up in that rage exhibited by the nations from the Mesopotamian Valley who came and sacked Sodom and Gomorrah. And rage is not too strong of a word. You can see it in the Taliban and their seething hatred for us and for their own countrymen. And maybe you felt your own sense of rage this last Thursday, wanting our nation to act in power. And we're given two reactions from God to the world's agenda. First, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. The first is that God laughs at those spending all their energy on the city of man, exalting themselves. Now, why would God laugh? He knows that the nation's rage is futile. They can try as hard as they want, and they cannot cast off God's cords. They cannot cast off God's restraints. God's sovereign. Now, know this. God views Babylon, Nineveh, and Damascus and Russia, and China, Iran, and North Korea, and Afghanistan, all the same way. 
They're futile in their raging. While the United States may take a slightly different track than these countries, God laughs at our nation's rebellion as well. Imagine a country that has the audacity to pretend that there's no real difference between male and female. Despite biology and nature, our nation says, what's well, really just about choice. There's a good old word for that. You know what it is? Balderdash. Balderdash. Now, some of you say that young ones don't know what that means, perhaps. And I'm going to quote from Merriam-Webster here. It's language, behavior, or ideas that are absurd and contrary to good sense. Enough said. The nations, the restraint they're trying to cast off is the very word of God that reflects the power of God and the heart of God. We put the God of sex and money ahead of God. We tried to recreate God in our image, or we, we pretend he doesn't exist. We've taken God's name, we've abused it as a curse word. We've deliberately violated the Sabbath and tried to work ourselves to death. And at the same time, we've denied that, that work is an essential part of human dignity. We've denied the roles of parents, of honoring fathers and mothers. And now we claim that children belong to the state. Murder goes on murders in our cities. The murder of unborn children, thousands upon thousands of preborn children. In that regard, the Taliban have nothing on us. We've said that marriage does not matter anymore than the difference between male and females. The family's targeted for destruction. We stand by and we let looters rob the town square. Truth may not to be whatever we want it to be. There's no such thing as a false witness. Two plus two, there's no right or wrong answer. Coveting, crass materialism is a way of life. See, we do not want the restraints of God's word from God's heart. And all the nations rage against it. At the same time, the Old Testament has a, a parallel narrative as it reveals God's agenda, and that's the story of Jerusalem. It's a type of the city of God. Jerusalem is to be different. Decidedly different. The joy of the whole earth. It's the city of King David with David installed as king on God's holy hill. Listen to God's declaration. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, Ask for me. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. It's to be the city of God's blessing. Psalm 48, his holy mountain, beautiful elevation, is the joy of the whole earth. Mount Zion in the far north is the city of the great king. And initially, Jerusalem flourishes. Under Solomon, silver does not matter. Everything is golden. Justice and righteousness and wisdom reign. The city prospers. And from the time God establishes Jerusalem, the nations rage against it. The Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Philistines, the Syrians... The Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. And the reality is that we live in a fallen world, and that ultimately does even Jerusalem in. People like Adam and Eve, not living for their own glory, uh, but for God's glory rather, but for their own. So sin triumphs as the people of God seek their own agenda and not God's. So the prophet Jeremiah laments, Lamentations 2, What can I say for you? 
To what can I compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. Let me just pause and say about those last verses, that's, that's the church. That's the prophets and the preachers of today that he's talking about who lead people astray by moving them away from the Word of God, who refuse to tell them the truth and expose their iniquity and tell them what sin is. Prophets that try to accommodate the Word of God and appease the culture. And friends, Jeremiah says they're leading God's people astray by downplaying sin. Then he continues, All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty? The joy of the whole earth. Understand, friends, the world thinks the agenda of God is failing. They thought that in the Old Testament. Jerusalem was was rebuilt, but never to its former glory. In the meantime, another city of man grew up, the city of Rome, became the world's great power. And in 70 AD, the Romans again destroyed Jerusalem. The city of God was in ruins, and the city of man seemed triumphant. But something had happened 40 years prior to the fall of Jerusalem. The world really did not notice, uh, but God again installed his king in Zion on his holy hill, but he did it in the strangest way. He used the rage of the nations, the rage of the Romans, and the rage of the Jewish leaders, and they crucified Jesus. But through his death and resurrection, Jesus became a foundation and a cornerstone for a new city, a new city not made with human hands, a new Jerusalem for a new people of God. And after his death and resurrection, Jesus ascended back to heaven, He took his seat at the right hand of the Father, who is the King forevermore. You see, Jesus hears the Father's word and the nation's rage because God is accomplishing his agenda. Verse 7. By the way, this is Jesus now speaking here. He's the I. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you're my son. I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So now the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain against Jesus as he stakes his claim on the nations. The city of man learns here what? They're destined for destruction. The humbling that the United States received this past week is nothing compared to the humbling of the nations in that day under the hand of God. Rome itself, the greatest city of the first century, that Peter and John symbolically refer to in the New Testament as Babylon, was slated for defeat. And friends, today the world is filled with great cities, and they have their fists raised against the sky. Shanghai, Tokyo, Jakarta, Manila, Sydney, Bangkok, Delhi, Kinshasa, Cairo, Sao Paulo, Mexico City, 
Buenos Aires, Bogota, Istanbul, Moscow, London, Paris, New York. Much time and much effort and much capital has been invested in those cities over the last century and the last millennium in some cases. And as we walk through this fallen world, God calls us in Jeremiah 29 to seek the welfare of these cities where we are living as the people of God. And that means an interest, yes, in their physical welfare. It means caring for the poor, the downtrodden, the afflicted. It's being the hands and feet of Christ who reigns in heaven and hears their cries. But more than that, we're committed and called to live the gospel, to share the gospel, to announce the triumph and the reign of King Jesus, realizing the nations will rage when we do. Understand, there are many that hate a gospel that tells them that they're sinners, that they're not entitled to their own truth, but that all truth is rooted in God, that Jesus himself is the embodiment of that truth. And so they rage, and unable to rage directly against God, they rage against one another. Therefore, as David writes, the command is clear. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. See, the nations rage because they reject God's demands, God's authority. They reject serving the Lord. They reject rejoicing in him. And ultimately, they reject kissing the Son to acknowledge King Jesus, to humble and submit themselves to his authority. And because of that, they'll become object of God's wrath. They'll be part of God's judgment against the cities that have raged against him, typified by what we read about Babylon in Revelation 18. Let me just say, we wondered about the single hour here, where we saw Babylon in the Old Testament fall in a single night. We want to see how quickly God can bring down the whole world. Just remember COVID in the last year and a half. We read this in Revelation 18. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out. Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she's been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence, and we found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters, will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. And all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in there was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. You know, watching the fall of Afghanistan is devastating. 
Our hearts break over the plight of the Afghan people in the hands of the Taliban. Similarly, similarly, the world's heart will break at the fall of Babylon, representing the fall of the city of man. No more music, no more art, no more commerce, no more manufacturing, no more family life. Friends, finally, the nation's rage because of how the story ends. And you see, it ends with hope for the people of God. You know, we look at the destruction of the city of man, we inevitably ask, what about the Christians? We pray for the church in Afghanistan, in China, in Iran. What about their safety? Revelation 6 contains a sobering answer. I saw under the altar the souls of those who been slain for the word of God and for the witness they'd borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves were. Friends, I can tell you, sadly, until Jesus comes again, his people will face the possibility of martyrdom. What we look forward to is yet to be, but it's our certain hope. And then Revelation 6 goes on to describe the astonishing ending. I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the moon, full moon, became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of the wrath has come. And who can stand? Well, no one can stand on their own. But this is where the hope for the people of God comes in. Notice how Psalm 2 ends. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Friends, when we're believers in Jesus Christ, you see... This is not the end of the story. Our story of hope is is just beginning. Like Abraham and Sarah, we're looking for a city where we belong. But such a city is not going to be found on this earth yet. Rather, we have a better hope, a certain hope, and that is the glory of Jesus Christ. Go back to Revelation, this time to chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven, a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea, the chaos, was no more. And I saw the holy city of New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. 
And he was seated on the throne and said, Behold, I'm making all things new. It's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God. and He will be my son. See, the rage of the nations ends. And we will be forever with the Lord. So what about us? First, let me tell you, there's much about the rage of the nations that disturbs us, that frightens us, that saddens us, that angers us. A rage that will continue to manifest itself until Jesus comes again. So it should challenge us to pray. To pray for the gospel of grace in our own lives to make us holy. To pray for the gospel of grace to reach the next generation. To reach our neighbors. To reach the nations, our world. We've got to pray for God to raise up gospel laborers who will go out with the gospel message. Not a social gospel, but the gospel based on Jesus' death and resurrection. See, when Jesus asked the Father for the nations, he then sends us out to go and make disciples of those nations. We go forward into a lost world with the great invitation of Jesus himself. Let the one who's thirsty come and drink. Let the one who desires take from the water of life without price. The city of man will entertain and amuse for a while. But in the end, it faces destruction. And it cries out to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. But for us, the city of God is our refuge. And that will satisfy us. And it will last forever. Which city is yours? Let's pray. Father, the nations rage. The people's plot in vain because they hate you. They're raging against each other because they, they want to rage against you. So, Father, we, we join in the prayer of this psalm to, where Jesus asks for the nations. He asks for people from every tribe and language and nation and tongue on the face of the earth to be his followers. Father, he sends us out, Lord, sends us out to the next generation sends us out to our neighbors, sends us out in the marketplace, sends us out to the nations with the gospel. Father, raise up laborers to the whole world. Raise up laborers to the next generation. Father, use us to proclaim the hope that blessed are all who take refuge in you. Father, we thank you that you've installed Jesus as king in Zion. We thank you for his death and for his resurrection and that even now he reigns at your right hand for us and intercedes for us, Father, with you. 
So, Father, encourage us, we pray. And if there's somebody here that's still in the city of man, Father, they don't have the hope of the city of God today, Father. Show them your love poured out in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the King. Father, draw them to that love, we pray, and to the glory of Jesus Christ. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.